Divorce Conversations, where we analyze, navigate, and troubleshoot all stages of your romantic life. I'm your host, Igor Meisterman, a divorce attorney turned relationship coach. Well, hello, everybody. And since we've been discussing two big themes in self-esteem, mostly diagnosing it and then dealing with roadmap to healing. How do we heal? How do we bring self-esteem to a healthy place? Was P.L. Melody, in the book that I always keep raving about, Facing Love Addiction, says, how do we even establish self-esteem? In other words, can't really be good or bad. It either exists or it doesn't exist. Quite enough of the semantics. And today, I actually want to dive in more into conversation about practicalities. So what does this look like? Let's take a look at some of the common scenarios we face as spouses, we face as parents, we face as children, co-workers. There are all sorts of settings, relational settings, where self-esteem is tested. And it only makes sense, after all, if we are relational creatures, as I hold as a theory, especially in trained in the model therapy, so then the way we experience ourselves, the way we experience other people is very much driven by our perception of the self and ultimately also our perception of others and how others perceive us. But the idea is, is that we don't live in this kind of hypothetical self-contained bubble. We actually live in this constantly, regularly interacting space. And what winds up happening in that interacting space is we're either built up more we develop more, we become more bigger, confident, creative beings, or we become defeated, undermined, lack of power, lack of potency, lack of vitality type of beings. And so all of these interactions can be examined and ultimately continuously put through the same lens, which is what does our self-esteem do in all those interactions and how it either protects us doesn't protect us, causes us to show up in all kinds of wacky, wild, intense, rageful, destructive ways, simply because ultimately there's something that was not worked out in us, something that was lacking in us that as a result causes us to show up that way to the interactions. So, of course, nothing like making it personal and nothing like sharing something a little bit from my own story. And so the following incident took place the other morning. Um, actually, let's rewind. Let's go back to the evening because that's really when it started. So I decided to cancel appointments, um, lose out on getting paid for only one reason, because I wanted to be a better husband and father. And it's a reason that I personally believe was very much worthwhile. And so we're sitting down. We're having this amazing dinner as a family. And while passing the meatballs, I'm able to, with the other hand, help my six-year-old do her basic arithmetics because they gave her a bunch of matches so she could count and subtract. And here I am filled with this feeling of super dad, super husband. I'm doing awesome. Well, God had a different plan to pop a little bit of bubble of that arrogance of mine. And the next morning, I walk into the house after prayer services at my synagogue, only find lots of bickering and fighting going on between a bunch of my girls. And I have four beautiful girls. And uh, there was a, a bickering unfolding in the kitchen. So I quickly run in to join, already feeling my blood pressure rising to my normal level. 
and my older one was speaking to the younger one, and there clearly was a bunch of unpleasantries exchanged. Well, as my older one was leaving the house, she turned around and she said to me, you promised us you were going to be home for bedtime. This is why all these things are happening, and that's why last night was a nightmare. See, what happened was is I had to attend to two clients, and as a result, I wasn't able to be around after the dinner to also help put the younger kids to sleep. And so my older wound up helping my wife, and of course, it only resulted in all sorts of tensions and fighting between the kids. And when she said that to me, you know, the first thing that came to me was, ouch, that really hurts. I worked so hard to help my wife make the dinner, set the table, sit down and have some semblance of normalcy and calmness and connection, you know, on a random Monday. Like, who does that, right? Everybody kind of goes in the fridge, grabs their own thing. Typical thing in, in our house, and I think in many people's houses, is you grab some macaroni, slap a cheese on it, throw it in a microwave. Voila, two minutes later, macaroni and cheese. Everybody fends for themselves. Nobody's starving. But we really wanted to make it more. We wanted to make it more special. And so I put in prodigious effort, cleared my calendar till 7.30 to be available for the dinner, for connecting and bonding. And I simply could stick around after that and make two appointments to see two clients. Lesson that I will learn the next morning. So when my daughter made that comment, it was so sharp and so hurtful. It really, it really didn't sit well with me. But you know, after she left, I took a few deep breaths. You know, try to cleanse myself or whatever was rattling me. And then I just paused and decided to analyze. What was that? And no, I'm not referring to my daughter's comment. That's my ego. That I've learned to flag very quickly and, at this point, pay very little attention to. Ego is a distraction. What I found very interesting is, why was I feeling such a big ouch? And then I realized that I was seeking an affirmation from my child. And granted, she's a teenager and she's older, and her opinion matters to me very much. Please don't get me wrong. All of my kids' opinions matter, and my wife and I very much factor in their wishes, certainly wishes that they express into the picture, into the kind of full picture calculation of a decision we might make. But this was different. This time I gave awareness and I flagged that it wasn't just about a sharp comment and rebuke from my child. It wasn't about my honor, if you will, and you must obey me, you must acknowledge me. It really just came off from a place of, I'm hurt by what you said. But I also then realized that it also had to do with the fact that I'm still holding in a fragile place the way I relate to my self-esteem, the way I perceive my value. After all, if I'm going to have thoughts like, am I a good father? Have I failed as a father? If such thoughts can enter my mind at a mere few-minute exchange with my child in the kitchen while making breakfast as everybody heads out of the house, how well positioned is my self-esteem if I could be that easily swayed by a few simple comments by my child. And the answer that my mind generated for me and really my whole being just kind of felt and called it out that I'm not really holding at a place that I thought I was. So I once again took a few more deep breaths, tried to recalibrate, tried to reset myself. And then the calmness came back to me. And then I realized that, is this not most interactions? Is this not what most clients talk to me about? He said this, and then I felt miserable. 
She said that and I was devastated. My kid said this, I was moping around the house for three days. What is that? What is that all about? How could we as adults be that paralyzed by somebody else's words? Well, as we discussed already in the previous um, self-esteem episodes, it's pretty obvious. It only could happen if I haven't yet established a really developed, strong, vibrant sense of self. Because if that sense is not fully there, if it's not really developed, then what really is there? What there is a blank slate, as you know, John Locke, to borrow from historical political context, tabula rasa, a blank slate. I am an imprint of the interactions that I receive from others, whether it's my spouse, my children, my boss. If I am that rattled, if I am that disturbed by information as it arrives in my world, where is my world? My world is an empty slate into which information enters. And when that information arrives, that becomes my world. Just think about that for a minute. Until that moment, it's as if I didn't exist. No wonder James Clear, who in this phenomenal book, I highly recommend for everybody to read, called Atomic Habits, he, he, he makes this distinction that seems so subtle, but it's so powerful. For example, when it comes to thinking about one's health, right? Does a person say, I don't smoke, I do not like to smoke, or I am not a smoker? There's a difference between acting and embodying an identity. If I am this identity, that is what fills me. So if somebody comes along and says to me, you know, you're really an unhealthy person, but I've made so clear for myself, I am a healthy person. When that person says those words, it simply means nothing. The words have no currency in my world because my world simply says, I don't identify with that. I'm willing to re-review, revisit, maybe once a year, right? Rosh Hashanah is coming. Once a year, it's nice to do an annual review. Where am I holding? Who am I real? But every day to walk through life, and as I encounter people and their dysfunctionalities, their unhealthiness, as that stuff enters into my world, and my world processes it and takes it on as an identity, well, then that says something about my world. And what it says is not so positive, because of what it says is my world hasn't been defined yet. My world is still a blank slate, totally impressionable by others. And of course, obviously, in work that I do with clients, um, it's a typical conversation that we have. What is the deeper story underneath that? Where does it come from? Why do I so easily allow things to enter? Why do those things become my identity? But where's all this coming from? And that's the type of work that has to take place um, in order for true healing to um, evolve, unfold, and for me to ultimately embody an identity I want to embody. So if I really believe I'm a good parent, when my teenager comes over and says, Dad, you are awful. Mom, I hate the way you do things. You don't know anything about parenting. As another one of my kids so uh, cleverly and sneakily decided to walk over and approach me because this, this child observed that I was reading a book about education, about uh, childhood education, how to be a good parent. And then the moment something was wrong, snap of the fingers, 
you don't know what you're doing as a parent. You have no clue. And you're left kind of with a very limited number of choices, I would say. One choice is let yourself be defined by the words of your kid. Another option is, but I know I'm a good parent. Okay, so once in a while, I've made a mistake. No, no. Is that not part of being a human being? Is that not part of the experience, the journey of humanity? And that's why I love the way Pia Melody calls it, that when she defines self-esteem, one of the ways that she defines it is ability to accept my humanity in the face of my flaws. Ability to accept my humanity in the face of my flaws. Is that fascinating idea? Let's, why don't we take that apart? What does that mean to accept my humanity in the face of my flaws? Well, that means that as I do something wrong, can I pause and say to myself things such as, I did the best I could. You know, it's like a very big, almost to me, it's like a, a legend, a boogie, a boogie monster story that has just been made up in our minds. People beat themselves up so badly, you know, in sessions with clients, especially couples when they share, very often the feelings are like, I didn't do enough. I could have done more. I feel like I didn't do enough. I believe that you could have done more. I don't think you've done the best you can. I hear all these lines. But the reality is, is that 99% of the time, we really are trying to do the best we can. The only question is, are we willing to believe it? Are we willing to embrace the possibility that, no, I, I actually did the best I could. I couldn't have done more. If I could have done more, I would have done it. But I couldn't. So I did the best I could. And if that is true, then can I follow logically then to the next step? When I made that mistake, when I made the following error, I made a mistake. And you know what? That is also part of my humanity. I'm going to own it now. I'm going to take ownership. And if I hurt somebody's feelings, I will go and apologize. And if I did something that negatively impacted another person, I will go and talk to them about it and tell them that maybe if you feel bad about it, if that's what resonates with you, you could take ownership of yourself because now you can say to yourself, I don't have to be demonized. I don't have to beat myself into submission. I don't have to um, think of myself in such a negative way. I'm worthless. I'm a nothing to a point that I almost like, I have no more pulse. I have no more real value of existence that worth for anybody to hear, for anybody to notice. No, I don't have to think that way any, any longer. Instead, I could simply say, yeah, I made a mistake. Yeah, I didn't treat you the way I should, and I apologize. And I'm going to try better next time. I'm really going to give awareness to it. And you know what? You make sure to then sit down, and whether it's to journal, to write about it, to reflect, to speak to somebody, a therapist, a coach, a healer, whatever I have to do to then take the time to process what took place so that I could take ownership for it. Because, you know, something very interesting, it's almost kind of ironic and paradoxical at the same time. You see, when we do take those steps, we take ownership for what we've done. It's not only that we've healed and mended with the other person who we have harmed. We also have reaffirmed for ourselves that I am deserving also of forgiveness. Think about that for a minute. After all, if I go to somebody and I apologize, I tell them how sorry I am. I tell them I feel bad about what I've done. What I'm also telling them is that I affirm my humanity and therefore I am also deserving to be treated that way. You see, what often happens with people, it works in both directions. 
See, if I'm so impressionable by others and others pretty much set the tone of whether I'm a good person, I'm a bad person, I'm deservant of love, I'm not deservant. If that is how I operate in the way I receive others, well, think about it. That means I also see others that way, right? Very often, people who don't want to accept forgiveness are also unforgiving. And if we struggle forgiving others, we can always ask ourselves, would I also struggle receiving? Would I also have a hard time um, acknowledging others' imperfections, seeing them through the lens of mercy, of forgiveness, of accepting their imperfections and seeing and saying to myself, you know, others also struggle. So, so just like others struggle, so do I. You know, we can all struggle together. We can all show up for, for each other in an affirming, loving, caring way, even in the, in the face of those struggles. And so I invite you to take a moment and start reflecting and thinking and um, noticing, kind of capturing, catching those moments where how do I react? And am I reacting or am I responding? Because if I'm reacting, then there's a very good chance that there is also something not intact in my self-esteem. If I feel if I feel that you know blood boiling experience, if there's something that's coming up for me, then I can always ask myself, hmm, if it involves another human being, if I see another person and my blood starts boiling, how is that person taking ownership of my life? Or to say differently, how have I handed off control over my life to that person? Because after all, if I am being that deeply impacted by them, that means that I've given them permission to take ownership over something that's in my world or my world entirely. And that's why for many couples, conversation pretty much begins very early on as we explore the, the relationship dynamic, relationship profile, how the couple functions together. That's one of the typical first things that comes up for me is how much do I derive my sense of worth, my sense of self-esteem from the other person? And the more that I derive it through that relationship, the more good chance that it's a more of an indicator that I'm living with poor self-esteem, either non-existent self-esteem, low self-esteem. But there's a good chance that something is missing because if I was really intact, then that wouldn't happen. And you know, another fascinating thing, besides the fact that there would be less fighting, would be less frequent, there's also the element of duration and the intensity. I've asked couples very often as they progress in their journeys, we continue doing our program and couples regain that sense of I'm worthwhile, I'm deservant, I also have a place in our relationship, not only because you said so, my spouse, but because I inherently, intrinsically belong here at the table in the relationship. Well, um, one of the typical things that happens in the topic of, of duration and intensity is it becomes much less there's a certain reduction that takes place. And so typically, many times what a couple report to me is like, hey, Igor, it's so interesting. You know, we got into like a bit of a scuffle the other day and I felt like, like literally within half an hour, we were in totally different space as a couple. All of a sudden, like it just kind of like washed over us and we, we didn't feel that, you know, what I call emotional cramp. When all of a sudden everything just kind of freezes up, the emotion swells up and I feel total la loss of control over myself, over 
what's happening to me. I totally just enter more this the, the space of like, okay, okay, fine. We got into an argument. You know what? You're okay. I'm okay. We're both okay. We both matter. Neither one of us is reduced in the other's eyes. Neither one of us is reduced in our own eyes. I still believe that I'm valuable, I'm intact, and nothing about my value has been reduced simply because um, we got into this dispute or this argument. We're still both totally okay. And when you start seeing those signs, that's a huge indicator that means that something has been growing in the realm of my self-esteem. I've been becoming more and more um, developed, worked out, healed person. My sense of who I am and, and why I'm valuable, why I deserve to be at the table with you is no longer defined, driven by the things you will say to me or the things you think about me or what I perceive you think about me. And so we see from this, from this conversation today, how much self-esteem within ourselves is actually driving the relational space. And that's the interaction that takes place in relations, whether it's romantic couples, whether it's parents and children. One of the things that repeatedly will take place is conversation around this topic of self-esteem. Oh, how much do you impact my space? How much do I allow, give permission, have granted kind of authority for somebody else to dictate what my inner world looks like? what really takes place in there. And the more that it happens in that way, the more I've handed off that control and allowed somebody else to define me, the more an indication that I probably live with low self-esteem. And the less I allow things to bother me, the more it's a good indication that I have, I have a fairly healthy self-esteem. You may be wondering, well, is there a point where you reach and you kind of like become, what are you, an angel? Like, do you become God? Nothing phases you, nothing bothers you? No, that's not what we're saying. In fact, it's perfectly normal to be frustrated if you're sitting in traffic. That's not an indication of low self-esteem or not believing in God. Or uh, somebody in the supermarket yells because you took too long to pick out something or to get your wallet out of your, your pocket. Uh, and all of a sudden, oh, somebody's decided whether I'm a competent, capable person or maybe I shouldn't be allowed to go shopping without an assistant. That is not the conversation, not even close. Uh, what we're discussing is more of what happens in our internal world when we perceive others taking a certain position about us. Um, how does that internal world and me mechanism operate? And if it operates in a certain way from a place of, well, it depends on how you'll react to me. Um, how am I feeling? We'll find out in a few minutes. All right, those, those types of conversations, well, as soon as that happens, it's such a clear indicator that I haven't really come to terms with who I am, what my worth is by my own standards. Me being able to look in the mirror and say, you know, I'm made in God's image and therefore I carry a certain value that nobody could take away. Nobody could ever blemish. Nobody could ever harm. No one could really damage or do anything to this because this place is sacred. This space, the sense of who I am, my belonging, my worth, is not negotiable. And so as we interact in our relationships, whether with our spouses, our significant others, our children, and things will come up, there's flare-ups, there's challenges. And when these things happen, as long as we 
can always turn to that great anchor of, you know, I know what I'm worth. I see my value now. And nobody could really take it from me. Nobody could really manipulate it, touch it, um, in any way diminish my value just as a human being. Then I can come to accept with humanity my flaws. And when I make mistakes, I can simply own them and move on. And I don't have to be on a daily basis taken hijack, either by my spouse, my coworkers, my children. I'm able to just show up and push through because I'm always able to revert and use as the great anchor my self-esteem. Hope you enjoyed. Thank you for joining us today. For questions, comments, topics you'd like to hear more about, or to try our 24-week relationship challenge, email us at relationshipreimagined at gmail.com.